This show may contain my tips for making money on Bitcoin. It won't. It also may contain explicit language, and it really might. It's Thursday, August 1st, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. There was a debate in Detroit last night. Perhaps you heard about it. If not, text Joe, www30 for 30 on ESPN, AOL, keyword, anachronistic. Okay, that was an hilarious mistake. But many of Joe Biden's other bloopers, blurps, and blunders were not so hilarious. Cumulatively, they were telling if individually they were relatively inconsequential. In fact, I do think Joe Biden was criticized rather incompetently by his rivals at times, but he snapped back even worse. In fact, he snapped back as languidly as the flesh on your grandfather's elbow. But what I am going to do in the spiel is I'm going to do this. I'm going to tell you what Joe Biden should have said. Before I do that, I will just make this comment on one of the common themes of the debate last night, even the debate the night before. When a liberal or progressive idea was critiqued as too liberal, this was the warning note sounded. Well, that's playing into what the Republicans want. An irked Cory Booker, worried about giving Republicans fodder, evidence-based fodder. Hmm. The night before, Elizabeth Warren warned of giving Republicans talking points. Now, it reminded me a little bit of this critique from the Mueller testimony last week. This critique was voiced by many sagacious people. And yet here in this clip from Fox, we have it being said by Rudy Giuliani. The Democrats are going for sound bites for the election. Mueller saying obstruction of justice. You cut everything out. Obstruction of justice, which the guy will say, say obstruction of justice. Obstruction of justice. Did you decide it? No. Then we'll have that soundbite. So it's our soundbites, their soundbites. Handing Republicans talking points. Fodder for the evening news. And this was another one. A perfect soundbite for a campaign television ad. I just wonder if this in 2019 is the equivalent of sagacious political pundits in 1919 worrying if the horse and buggies were sufficient to get voters out to their polling places. Campaign ads occur, and by the way, people rode horses in 1919, but this is an era of deep fakes and Cambridge Analytica micro-targeting. Are over-the-air campaign ads really the source for concern? And a clip on the evening news? All right, the most watched evening newscast has over 7 million viewers. It's 1.5 million in the 25 to 54 demographic. Okay, okay, okay. And the worry about providing a talking point is a little more subtle, but this is the worry among Democrats that the Republicans are going to have a talking point that reflects an argument made in the Democratic debate, a somewhat legitimate argument. I mean, if the critique of the Bernie plan or the Warren plan were simply illegitimate, then Warren or Bernie would say, well, that critique is simply illegitimate. Instead, they were saying, well, maybe that has some legitimacy, but you're really providing a future Republican talking point, meaning you are warning fellow Democrats, that some Republican talking point in the future will have some legitimacy. But have you seen the Republican talking points? I'm not saying that they never say anything that are a little truthful, but that doesn't happen a lot. Caravans and FBI spying and so forth. The quality and volume of whatever talking points that come from intra-democratic party discussions will, I believe, pale in comparison to the volume of talking points generated from the deep-seated wackadoo minds that the GOP will surely unearth. 
I even think that the quality, and not quality in the real world, just the quality of how effective they will be to potential Republican voters, I would say the nutty stuff will play much better with them than anything that's actually voiced in a Democratic debate. Why would they bother with cogent arguments that Democrats make? This is a rational mind predicting how a mad bomber might think. Don't worry about the other side's talking points, guys. Don't worry about the sound bites or the campaign ads. Also, don't worry about the leafleting, any advances in railroad car bunting to augment your whistle-stop speeches, and really don't spend too much time worrying if they've invented a super-large megaphone to speak into when amplifying your remarks at the Young Men's Lyceum. Just do one thing, and don't let their weird heads play games with yours. On the show today... It's that what Joe should have said thing that will surely rescue the foundering campaign of Scranton's most scattered son. But first, he is a two-time Grammy Award winner and now a two-time guest of The Gist. He conveniently played a live concert right outside our doors a couple of weeks ago, and I decided to have him back. He is fantastic Negrito. Let us do this. Let us listen to a couple of minutes of the set that he played right here in Brooklyn and then let us convene a conversation with Xavier, or his nom de blues, Fantastic Negrito. We'll start by asking, Xavier, what song is it you are going to play for us? People working hard and hard and harder and have no money, and I'm tired of seeing senior citizens working at Home Depot. I think we're better than all that. So Exhibit A, I would like to introduce you to a song I call Plastic Hamburgers. Keep on, keep on. Yeah. Oh. 
So a little story about me. I think the musician who's most associated with the gist because we got on him early and then he blew up <laughs> is Fantastic Negrito. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I saw that Fantastic Negrito, real name Xavier, help me. Difrepolez. Difrepolez, which is not exactly an, a real name that can be found in nature. Yeah, you know, my, I come from a long line of hustlers. Bro. Yes. So I think they made that shit up. Basically. Well, it's good. It works. It's good yeah. branding. Uh, you can't spell it on a Scrabble board because nah. it has too many X's. But I saw he was playing in BAM, and I live right near BAM, which is the Brooklyn Academy of Music, and I said, I'm going. And then upon deeper investigation, I found out he wasn't playing at BAM or in BAM. He was playing at a BAM-sponsored outdoor event and guess where the outdoor event is right outside my office right outside so i (laughs) decided to have xavier in to talk about what he's doing the last few years the fact that he's won a grammy in two of the last three years for best contemporary blues album xavier welcome back to the gist thanks for coming by man it's so good to be here this is a very special place to me because as i Tell people, I mean, the gist is like my godfather, you know, and I'm like, what's that guy say? I'm Johnny Fontaine. <laughs> I got you out of the contract. <laughs> so it's like, you know, yeah, before before Tiny Desk. Yes. You got to remember before Tiny Desk. So you won the NPR Tiny yeah, Desk concert. Tiny Desk. I was, you, you yeah. and I were sitting down together before that. And you brought your guitar. And you showed me the claw, and the claw claw lives. The the, claw. The claw is your right hand because, and and we could see this, or or, um, music fans, people interested could see this on the cover of your last album, that there you are in the hospital after an accident, and you almost died. Yes, three weeks in a coma. Jesus. And then you come out, and you were a very good musician beforehand, but you can't play with your right hand. Well, I just kind of, it's mangled, so I kind of just had to rethink and reinvent the way that Mm -hmm. I approach instruments and it helped me i think that's always what you have to do you know like i say i walked towards the light man i knew that i wouldn't be able to play like i did before so i just invented a new way to play and it actually served me better I, I, i'm the king of spin yeah as my friend tells me i'm like hey this is better having a mangled right hand like it's, it's better well you play a certain like aggressive style pretty ugly style yeah it's pretty ugly yeah and um it turned me more into a writer too and i started mm-hmm. making more money what about piano though no i still do it i just like kind of the claw i play it like it's very deadly and ugly. so your left hand you could uh really do a little bit but my left hand's messed up too you can't see it because i have a titanium rod that goes from my shoulder oh, wow. to my elbows yeah. Yeah. So this is really messed up too. But hey, like my grandma used to say, you work with what you got. Yeah. When I started this, just playing on the streets, I was like, I don't really feel any pressure. I mean, I'm not a rapper. I'm a middle-aged guy. I'm not a pretty white girl singing pop. <laughs> I'm not Beyonce. So I felt like, hey, there's no pressure here. I can really do what I love. And I can feel actually like I'm 17 again, like when I wanted to start playing music. And I just... You didn't really think about all these like categories and genres right. and boundaries and what you can do and what you can't do. So there's a great liberty being a complete freak and weirdo. You just I just make these records and hello, tiny desk and two Grammys later. Yeah. It's I'm like I'm still in disbelief. I'm like, I don't get it. Like, but 
Right. So I have uh, I have the list of the Grammys for best blues albums. Contemporary. Con- well, it's weird because they kept changing the category. Right. Right. I think con- I've only won. I've won two in contemporary. I won. Well, that's because you're contemporary. Yeah, I guess. You <laughs> you're not playing other people's old songs. Well, you're I don't. Playing, you're not covering funny. Howlin' Wolf. I don't. And I love Howlin' Wolf, yeah. too, but I'm not going to play it because I'd sound ridiculous. <laughs> and I don't have a 12 bar blues song. Someone yeah. pointed that out to me. I was like, yeah, I guess I don't. I mean, I think I fell in love with the spirit and the feeling and kind of the punk rockness of what blues is. I love the feeling of it. I love the spirit. I love the soul of it. Right. I'm happy and I want to just make uh, music and hopefully I can stay in this bubble before they destroy me. <laughs> does it Does it help sales and notoriety and your visibility to win Grammys? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, and, and do they actually give it to you, not during the televised part, but during that night? That's why I was disappointed. The first time that I won, they handed me the Grammy, and I was like, oh, I'm gonna yeah. ta- I was going to France the same night. So I was ready to like, yeah, act a fool, drink on the flat. Like, yeah, I got a Grammy. Let's drink out of the Grammy. You know? <laughs> but uh, it didn't happen. They take it, and you get it like two months later. Are you at the big ceremony, though, with that yeah, everyone else? Yeah, I sit up, they call the name. And like, but they don't put it on TV. Yeah, because it's contemporary blues. Oh yeah, that would that would totally contemporary blues. Yeah, right, right. Everyone there, all the other artists who are winning awards, wouldn't be there without the blues. But exactly. they can't give an award to the blues. You know, it's funny. A funny moment happened because Buddy Guy, oh the best, who was like the guy who won in twenty fifteen. No, he just 20... won the best blues album with me this year. Oh, awesome. so before Buddy Guy had me open your co-winners, for... right? Your yeah, we're co-winners, He's... right? God damn, buddy so guy. So before I even won a Grammy, he had me open for him, kind of like you. He's yeah. like, you know, give me the pound. Like, man, all right, man, you're doing your thing. It was great. And I was like, thank God, buddy guy doesn't think I suck. Yeah. I like that when I can get those people to go like, okay, man, you're doing something, man. This is, you know, keep, keep this is good. Right. That that makes me feel, uh, I don't know, valid. Makes me feel, yeah, I hate to say it validated in a way because I'm really worried about them. Yeah. More than about you know a label or a company or a uh, or an award, but it shows that this music, this kind of music, really broadly defined, that you love, that these people who we all admire and respect love, they're recognizing in you that you're keeping it alive and changing it a little bit and so changing it. Yeah, that's exactly. the great compliment, yeah. I think. That like what you represent for the blues and for music in general. Right. Yeah. It's just yeah. like no fear, kind of, and like, hey, this is this is feelings. This is humanity. Yeah. This is a beautiful thing, and I've rediscovered it. And man, I'm keeping it long as I can. <laughs> Say my blessings every day. So we've we've talked a few times, and I've listened to a few interviews you've given, and there's one aspect of you that actually I just realized, which is you frequently say something like. Well, it just seemed obvious to me to do something. Or I don't understand why people don't see it this way. And some of the things that you're saying seemed obvious to you are actually kind of crazy things. Like, (laughs) I didn't know how to play a piano. So it seemed obvious to me I'd sneak inside the university and teach myself to play. Yeah, it seemed like, (laughs) I mean, from the Bay Area, you know, this is what you do. You, You know, the Bay Area was always a hustling culture. I mean, it was a pimp culture. It was crazy. Growing up, I think people were always finding a way and i'm not glorifying or advocating pimping but that is just what was happening growing up right the bay area was a rough and tough place man oakland i remember having the highest murder rates in the country that small city it was it was something so um once i discovered music i was like relief so that was around when 17 18 about 17 i discovered like oh i could do music did you have a natural knack for it i had a natural knack for songwriting i think that's always was it just, I knew I had the chords and the songs came and I was, you know, in the UC Berkeley, just sitting in that practice room, 
And the way my lesson was, I was listening to what people were playing. Uh-huh. And it was usually scales, but I didn't know what a scale was. So I found out that you could play a scale on every piano key, and I thought that was incredible. And so I'd go up there like wearing a tie. That's what I thought college people were. Yeah. Oh, yes. Hello. I'm here to use the practice room. I think, you know, sometimes, you know, they just look at me. I think they may have known. I don't know. Yeah. But that was like my complete music education because I tried it at Berkeley High School where I was going. But the my classmate was Joshua Redman. I don't know if you know who he is, but you jazz people will know who he is. So they were like... uh, can you get can you get the fuck out of here? Because you <laughs> suck. And uh, uh, Jubu Smith, who like you know did the Tonys and Mariah Carey, these were the guys that I was passing in the hallway. So wow. I'd go up there into that room that they were playing the shit out of the piano, upright bass, horn, and I'd come in like dung 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 dung, and they'd just be like, uh, "You gotta go." So you went to college instead of high school. <laughs> I went to, high uh, school was too tough for. Well, you I was like, yeah, I, went yeah. To, I was like, you know, that was fuel every time I was. Told I couldn't do something. I was like, all right, that's, I'm putting that in the tank. Awesome. And I went and just privately went and learned. And So you got good after a while. Got pretty good. I got learned that you can make chords and all yeah. this stuff. And then I got good and I just started. I think it took me about five years after that. I was damn near signed to a major label. I mean, you know, for a million dollars. Yeah. And then you get into that car accident and it's I, on the cover of Please Don't Be Dead. Yeah, man. I mean, yeah. I spent five years, four and a half. On Interscope, nothing happened. I made a record. Everyone hated it. And uh, I didn't know what depression was, but I was depressed. I was like, man, I didn't know what to do. I didn't really know what the next move was. So it was made for me. I was in a car accident, and that got me. I remember in the hospital, kind of with my eyes just opening up and groggy, and I saw a guy coming towards me as a legal team, whatever. They said, oh, you're, you're dropped from Interscope. Nice. Found out in the hospital. Yeah. True. Wow. And for a minute, I was like, oh, no. Then I was like a little bit happy. It's like, finally, I'm kind of free. Right. And um, that was like the first phase. And the second phase was, you know, in the underground in L.A. and like discovering Afro-punk and rock and Espanol. And- well, you have to start over from scratch, but you'd already started from scratch. There's been a right. couple of times in your life exactly. when you started from scratch. When you became Fantastic Negrito, it was starting from that scratch. That was the third time, time, actually. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Because I quit after that stint in L.A. and became a marijuana farmer for five <laughs> years, and that was great. A gentleman marijuana farmer. A marijuana farmer. <laughs> cultivator yes. of cannabis. <laughs> And that's when it was pretty lucrative. And so I was like, I opened an art gallery. I was like hanging out with my friends like Malcolm Spellman. We were all like in a collective together. And like he's becoming a writer and he gets empire. And we're all, you know, just having a good time. I never thought I would play music again. I sold all of my equipment, all of my instruments. I literally had no feeling for it. I was just like something I used to do. And um, so it's okay to quit. That's what I learned. And then when it was time to uh, come back, now I kind of got talked into it by Malcolm. Like, you got to really? be a musician. Yeah, he was like, man, you got to. The thing that happened is that, you know, when I had a little boy and I discovered that he was like crazy for the guitar. So I would just play only for him. Yeah. I was like, I'm going to write. Not write. I would play. I think I was playing like a few cover songs, Beatles, people I'd never really listened to. And uh, I played Across the universe. Yeah. That was, I played that for my son every night to go to sleep. 
because it was so melodic and yeah. beautiful. Turns and so, out the Beatles are pretty good. <laughs> I discovered the Beatles yeah. in, my, in, my, in, my, in my 40s. No. He thought I wrote the song. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, it, was, it was interesting. But he kind of got me liking music again, but I never thought to be an artist again. That was just good artists and people around me pushing me, pushing me. And then finally I was like, yeah, I got an idea, like fantastic Negrito. And uh, majority of people were like, boo, that's terrible. What a terrible name. <laughs> Except Malcolm, he was like, that's genius. It is a good name. People were like, Xavier, white people, we don't want to say the word Negrito. It makes us uncomfortable. I remember this guy said this. And I was like, that's actually cool then. Like, <laughs> yeah. making, let's make white people uncomfortable. Well, it's very cool because they're wrong to be uncomfortable. They're wrong. Right? Thank you, Mike. <laughs> they're wrong. Right, right. If it t- was something that, oh, white people can't say that, but they can if right. only they knew. So the th- they by, by announcing, it's interesting, by saying I'm uncomfortable, what they're trying to say is, oh, because I don't want to be perceived as racist or insensitive. But what they're really doing well, is saying, I don't say know it. Spanish that Ooh, much, and therefore give it to me. I'm a little they, it's like this. I don't have Latino friends. <laughs> right, right, right. I don't talk to Latino. I grew up with in the hood with Mexicans or Salvadorians, or Honduran people. It's like you heard that in every song. Like, oh, Negrita. And all that. So I, it was just, just not, you know, it was cool. Yeah. Yeah. So please don't be dead. There are a couple songs where you'll be playing them uh, in concert out here. Absolutely. Now, there's one I heard you do live where you talk about ice raids are coming. Sing it louder because ice is waiting outside the door. Is that the sort of... Are you going to refrain from doing that, given that this past weekend they were said to be coming? Man, I do it in Europe. Uh I do. And I do like the whole immigrant thing because that's what... Again, it's the fun part about being an artist that really no one's looking for. And I'm not like uh, beholden to some huge major label and no one owns me. So you can explore the topics you want, man. You can have a little courage in the age of fear where everyone's afraid of everything right and they're afraid of losing an endorsement and they're afraid i don't have any endorsements so and they're afraid of uh being labeled as a racist or this and you're a that you said you like black coffee oh sh- you know i don't know what's that you put cream in your coffee what are you saying <laughs> man what are you saying like you can't say anything and i i'm just too old for that i'm like sorry i can't really play that game and i love uh making an audience think a little bit and be a little uncomfortable when i when i'm uncomfortable is when i grow and learn shit so you know are you working on a new album you know i kind of been working on a bunch of concepts and yeah you just have to decide is it going to be contemporary blues oh, no, or traditional no, blues no, no. has to be at least 51 oh, percent no. contemporary i don't do to that. be nominated hey to be honest with you and i i don't mean this in a mean way but when i won the first grammy last days of Oakland, i was like well cool yeah i remember thinking to myself now I'm going to make the complete, like, just opposite because I'm not really interested in this whole awards thing. So when I got nominated again, I was in complete shock. Yeah. And I thought, okay, I've definitely won if you nominated me with this album because I purposely was like, man, I'm all all over the place. You know, I'm going to do hard guitar riffs and chants and, like, whatever. I mean, yeah. I'm, this is 1968 again, man. This is the White Album. This is Electric Ladyland. That was my idea as a producer 
of um, Please Don't Be Dead. But, you know, it all starts with songs. You got to have songs. You ain't got songs, in my opinion, and uh, got to have songs. Everything becomes a concept. Yeah. And it ends with a great song, Bullshit Anthem, which oh, could yeah. be my anthem. <laughs> That's kind of, if there's going to be something on my grave, take that bullshit. Come on. Turn it into good shit. I love that because it just encompasses and embodies Everything, all the time that's happening, whatever it is, politically, in your relationship, in your marriage, uh, someone's treating you like an asshole, someone's being a racist, a homophobic, you know, you take that energy and you manufacture it into something great. And I really believe in that. Yeah, I know. That's what you've done throughout your whole life. That's right. Xavier is fantastic Negrito. His album, which won a Grammy, is called Please Don't Be Dead. He's playing here and there. You got to look him up. Thanks for coming in. Great to see you again. Thank you, Mike, man. You're like family, and I mean it. That was awesome. Thank you. Right on, brother. That was great. Take that bullshit. Yeah. Turn into good shit. 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 And now the spiel. Joe Biden was on the stage last night, and while it wasn't an Amtrak derailment, he didn't do that well. Yeah, he played a lot of the old hits. When you see BTO, you're going to get taken care of business, and you ain't seen nothing yet. And with Biden, we got a lot of Barack and malarkey, but this malarkey was less than sparkly. For those of us who aren't inherently hostile to a Biden presidency, and there are those, there are those who are, they abound. But if you're, you know, pro-Biden, so far as it goes. At times, watching him seemed like watching a beloved but aging St. Bernard trying to cross a rickety rope bridge while being pursued by an angry horde. I guess a horde out for St. Bernard blood. Like when he said, or tried to say this. The biopharma is now where things are going to go. It's no longer chemicals. It's about all these breakthroughs we have with the whole, dealing with the whole excuse me, immune system. And that's without even being pressed hard. When he was challenged, he was consistent in that he never gave a very good answer. There was one okay one ridiculously brought forward by Kirsten Gillibrand. She asked him, can you answer for this op-ed you wrote in 1981? What did you mean when you said when a woman works outside the home, it's resulting in, quote, the deterioration of family? No, and I... that we are avoiding, these are quotes. It was the title of the op-ed. And that just causes concern for me because we know America's women are working. Four out of ten moms have to work. They're the primary or sole wage earners. They actually have to put food on the table. Eight out of ten moms are working today. Most women have to work to provide for their kids. Many women want to be working to provide for their communities you, and to Senator, help people. Let so the Vice President either you don't believe you. it today or... What did you mean when you said it then? In the very beginning, my deceased wife worked, but we had children. My present wife has worked all the way through raising our children. The fact of the matter is, the situation is one that I don't know what's happened. Remember, this was the response that I called good. He did say, but you used to like me, you used to compliment me. You came to Syracuse University with me and said it was wonderful. I'm passionate about the concern making sure women are treated equally. I don't know what's happened except that you're now running for president. But what he didn't say and what Joe Biden should have said was this. You realize... In the history of the United States of America, there has been exactly one president or vice president whose wife worked outside the home full time, and that was Jill. 
I think Dr. Jill Biden, and then list some credentials, would certainly disagree with your reading of that almost 40-year-old article. Then there was the time when Kamala Harris was asked this by Jake Tapper. Senator Harris, you have also been quite critical of Vice President, Vice President Biden's policies um, on race, specifically on the issue of busing in the 1970s, having benefited from busing uh, when you were uh, a young child. Vice President Biden says that your current position on busing, you're opposed to federally mandated busing, that that position is the same as his position. Is he right? That is simply false. And let's be very clear about this. When Vice President Biden was in the United States Senate working with segregationists to oppose busing, which was the vehicle by which we would integrate America's public schools, had I been in the United States Senate at that time, I would have been completely on the other side of the aisle. And let's be clear about this. Had those segregationists their way, I would not be a member of the United States Senate. Cory Booker- I won't play you all of the answer, but Senator Harris went on in the same vein. It was clear to me what Harris was doing. If those segregationists in the Senate then got my way, I wouldn't be in the Senate now. Fair enough. But guess what it didn't do? I'll give you a hint. But first, let's hear Joe Biden's answer. And I want to like, give you a chance to respond to what Senator Harris just said. And I'll tell you what Joe Biden should have said. He should have said this. Well, before you give me a chance to respond to her, you may want to give Senator Harris a chance to respond to your actual question, which wasn't criticize Joe Biden for working with his colleagues for getting things done. It was, how do your views on busing today differ from his views on busing today at all? And the answer is they don't. So my answer to you is she did not answer your question because she couldn't answer your question because it's not the answer she wants America to hear. What he did do was he attacked her a little bit and not that well. Something about her history as California attorney general, while at the same time, schools in Los Angeles were segregated. Okay. Then Biden tangled with Cory Booker. It did not go well. Certain beverage mixes were cited. Um, Mr. Vice President, there's a saying in my community, you're dipping into the Kool-Aid and you don't even know the flavor. Uh, you, need to, you need to come to the city of Newark and see the reforms that we put in place. The New Jersey head of the ACLU has said that I embraced reforms, not just in action, but in deeds. Here's what Biden should have said should have said about the entire exchange where he tried to get at Booker's tenure as mayor of Newark, but he just couldn't do it effectively because he wasn't prepped effectively or he didn't retain the information. So Booker kept citing how the ACLU praised him. Well, that's only after the ACLU clashed with him because four years into his tenure, the Newark PD was still a shambles. The ACLU petitioned for an investigation, and you objected, Senator Booker. And he could have read from NewJersey.com, Mayor Cory Booker was angered by the ACLU petition, quote, it's casting unnecessary aspersions on the police department. You're allowed to bring printed material, apparently, Kirsten Gillibrand did. Biden did not have those facts at his fingertips. He should have. His staff was pretty quick with them today. But here's the fascinating thing. Cory Booker clearly knew that that pushback was coming, that very pushback, and he was ready for it. I know this because even though Biden didn't give it to him, John King did when Cory Booker stopped by the set after the debate on CNN. But correct me if I'm wrong. Let's go through. You become mayor in 2006. In 2010, the ACLU files a 96-page complaint against the Newark Police Department. So you've been mayor for four years. 
three years later, you're right. They do commend you after they after an investigation, after the Justice Department get involved. But at the beginning, it was more contentious, was it not? I know you say you inherited a corrupt police department. I take you at your word. But at this point, you're mayor for four years. The ACLU is not coming to you saying, hey, buddy. They were coming to you saying we have a problem, Mr. Well, let's go through the timeline. Booker had a good answer. He said, I did oppose it and I was wrong. People love it when politicians say they were wrong. And guess what? If he had said that during the debates, there would have been a good counter answer, which is that, oh, PolitiFact rated your statements at the time as false about why you initially opposed the ACLU. And you started working with the ACLU in the Department of Justice only after a Senate seat came open because you were putting yourself in line for that position. I don't think you're a bad mayor. I don't think you're a bad senator. I just think you took the opportunity to advance your career and you weren't always the champion of police reform that you're portraying yourself to be. That's what Joe Biden should have said. All told, Joe Biden wasn't sliced as badly as he was in the first debate. He was more undone by his failure to stave off fairly weak aggression than he was by the aggression itself. Also in the first debate, Kamala Harris's charge was inherently more damaging. It was about segregation, and she is the very victim of that policy. The critiques last night, brought forth by Booker, Gillibrand, and Harris, had much less potential to damage, but damage they did because they revealed Joe Biden not to have the rhetorical skills and communicative ability to rise to the challenge. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist. You may know them by their touring name, the OK Caucasians. On What Next Today, it's Dave Weigel of the Washington Post, formerly of Slate, talking about that crazy congressional district, the NC9. It's NC17, hot talk about North Carolina's 9th congressional district, right there in your feed right now on What Next. The gist, you know, in my neighborhood, we have a saying, you're drinking the tang, but you ain't no astronaut. No, we don't have that saying. Oomperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.